Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Good. Um, hello, I'm Anthony. I get to lead Ivy in uh, various places. It's good to be able to have you uh, with us. Lord, uh, pray now as we come and look together at your word in this series where we're looking at uh, the last book of the Bible, at Revelation, and some letters that you wrote to the church there. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be able to see our name and address and um, what you say to us. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you all would say you're a Christian yet or not, but if you are, then you're going to know that one of the words that um, gets associated a lot with Christianity is joy. People who aren't Christians wouldn't necessarily think that that's what it's meant to be about, but for Christians, if you start to read the Bible, you're going to see that word joy appears a lot. And it isn't about happiness necessarily. We kind of sometimes make joy the same as happiness, but the the Christian idea of joy is something, it's like a, a light that shines really bright in the dark. That's, uh, that's the kind of joy we're talking about. And um, Jesus prayed for his followers, actually for us, in John chapter 17. He said, I pray that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So is that prayer being answered? Has that worked for you? Have you would you say you've got the full measure of joy that Jesus would want you to have? One chapter before that, he says to his disciples, he looks around at his little group of followers, and he says, you will rejoice, and no one will be able to take your joy away. And that's pretty amazing when you think about who it was that he was talking to, because those same friends, those disciples, were pretty soon, when he got arrested, and when he ended up being uh, crucified, etc., before long, and after that, even after his resurrection, and when he'd commissioned them, They ended up being persecuted, they lost homes, they lost family, they lost possessions, they pretty much lost everything. They were beaten, they were tortured, they were lied about, they went through all kinds of trials. All of them except one of the twelve, well one of them committed suicide, another one, as we know, um, wrote Revelation. John, he's the only one who wasn't martyred out of the rest. And in fact, they tried to kill him. They actually tried to boil him alive in oil, according to tradition. And uh, they weren't successful in killing him. So then they put him on this island called Patmos, where he would be in exile. I've been there. It's a real place. And um, he's exiled on this island. And yet Jesus promised joy. Jesus promised something strong enough to be able to withstand whatever he went through. Joy that nothing, that not poverty, not persecution, not pain, not loneliness, not torture, not death, would be able to overcome or take away. Now, each of these seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are written to real first century churches. 
in what we now know as Turkey. Real cities, real churches, real people, real places in history. But there also can be for us, we've got to look at them first in their historical context, that's what you do with the Bible, but then you can also look at them and think, what symbolic examples can they be for us? And, and how they can show us what the church is like and ultimately what we're like as well. And these letters were dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to his friend John, if you've been in this series, you'll know how that's been happening in the last couple of weeks. Jesus is dictating, and so they're written down by the pen of the Apostle John on the island of Patmos around 96 AD, long after most of the New Testament was written. And then, there was, many scholars believe, there were seven messengers who were then sent out from that island to be able to take these scrolls along that route, which would have been like the trade route around Asia Minor as it was. That was the natural route to take. So these, these postmen, if you like, were the angels, angelos, messengers, who take the letters. But they didn't just take the letters, effectively, it's like they were the letters. You would get seven guys who would suddenly turn up at Ephesus, if you were here last week, and one of them would open the scroll and read the letter to the people there and stay with them to help them to be able to embed that message in their community. And then six of them would then go on to the next place, which is where we're at now, which is the second one, which is Smyrna. And they would read the letter. But there, this was different. They had to find the people. Because there was no building that said Church of Smyrna. They were, this was a secret church. This was a suffering church. This was a, a, a church where it was really difficult to name the name of Christ. It was an undercover kind of church. So this group of people under pressure in a very scary place, suddenly, maybe in twos and threes, get gathered together and they're having this word from Jesus read to them. So let's read the letter. So the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. So Jesus is saying there, I'm the eternal God, I'm the everlasting God. He's just stating his credentials to be able to speak to them. He's the eternal God and his death and resurrection proves that. I know your afflictions and your poverty. How comforting would that be to start with that? What you're going through, I know. He knows. I know how tough it is for you. I know you're undergoing trials. I know it's hard for you. I know it's hard for you to live like this. I know you're about your affliction. You could translate that word tribulation. It's literally a word that's to do with crushing. There's stuff that's happening and it's like it could crush you. The weight of what you're going under. You're under crushing pressure. I know. And actually, ultimately, we know who Jesus is. And because he's the first and the last and because he died and rose again, he's also saying, I know what that feels like. I carried a cross. I, I actually carried the cross that I was crucified on and I know what poverty is like. I died naked for you on that cross, for your sins, and yet I've come to life. He's giving them hope. He's reminding them. They are not, they will never experience anything that he doesn't know, something of the pain of what it feels like. They, they have been, he's been tortured. He's died. He's been lied about. They won't be cut off from his love and his resurrection power. He's saying, I know the pressure. I know the weight that you're under. And there's two Greek words for poor. One, penia, 
means you've got nothing left over, no disposable income. It means you're not wealthy. You've just got enough to satisfy your basic needs. I think there's been times in my life I've been kind of there, but that's not this word. This word is chokos, and it means you literally have absolutely nothing at all. I've never known what that feels like in my life. And I know because I can compare it with some places in the world that I've visited where I have seen what that looks like. Absolute poverty, complete destitution. Go to a place like Haiti, I'm going there again in January and I'll see what it is for them to meet people. Most of the believers in Smyrna would have been slaves, abused, hungry, robbed. They had every reason to say, if this is a religion that's supposed to help us to have a good and happy life, it ain't working. Let's pack it in. But they didn't. They leaned in. They leaned on Jesus instead. And that's why he says the next thing. You are rich. What do you mean rich? How can people so poor be rich? See, in our society, we want, you know, one of the ultimate things is to get rich. But he says they're rich. And again, I've seen that in Haiti and in India and in Africa. I've seen people who are incredibly poor but spiritually rich. In our nation, by comparison, we can see lots of incredibly wealthy, spiritually poor people. High comfort, low commitment. Whereas you go to these other places and you see, and it was like it was in Smyrna, no comfort, total commitment. And as a result, this suffering church had holiness and had power and had true community. This happens in communities with Christ at the centre where suffering comes. And to prepare myself for this this week, I reread a book I read years ago called Tortured for Christ by a guy called Richard Wormbrand. He was a, a Romanian pastor. I, I, I met him many years ago. He came and actually preached in Glossop just before he died. Incredible, the stuff that he went through. He talks about how they were in, uh, at one point, he was, in, he was in, in prison for years. I think it was 14 years that he was tortured for Christ. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. He was in this, in this building and uh, it was like a ward. The, set, the, the cell was, they called it a ward. That was because the communists said basically not to, to believe in God was a mental illness. And so they were treating them by torturing them in order to get them to be able to recant. So he's in this ward together with these other guys, many of whom have been pastors who'd refused to, to pack in being Christians and to become communists. And he said, we cut this story, he says that there was, it was one of the guy's birthday and somebody smuggled in from the outside, somebody had paid one of the guards to bring in for this guy a treat and he unwrapped it in this little piece of paper. There were two pieces, two, two sugar cubes. Everybody gasped because nobody had seen sugar for two years. And they were like, eat it, eat it, it's your birthday. And he wrapped it back up in the paper and he said, do you know what, I'm not going to eat this today in case there's somebody else who needs it more than me. And the next day, there was a guy who was really, really ill and they all thought he would die. So he went over and he gave him the sugar and he said, you take this. And the guy unwrapped it and looked at it and he said, you know what, I'm not going to eat this today because there might be somebody who needs it more than me. So he wrapped it back up again. And then it passed on the next day and the next day. And, and it, Richard Wernbrand said, for two years, 
that sugar was never eaten. It was always being passed on to somebody else. That's rich. That's spiritual richness. They had grace upon grace. They were rich. And I know the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Say, do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is going to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation. You'll have this weight upon you for 10 days. Notice Jesus doesn't say, cheer up, the worst is over. I'm coming to get you out. Those enemies, those people lying about you, we're going to get them all to apologise and say they didn't mean it. And that's all the stuff we would want to hear. And it's just going to get better and better. He doesn't say that. He actually says the truth because he knows the truth. It's going to get worse for you. You're going to be lied about. The devil's going to put some of you into prison. That's not the kind of prophecy you go to a conference wanting to hear. But in the middle of that, do not fear. It's hard now. It's going to get harder. Do not fear. The attacks against you will get worse. Why is he telling them that? Because it's true. He's the way and the truth and the life. But he says it's for a short time, 10 days. That's what that is a, an idiom, a picture. 10 days doesn't mean it's only going to be for 10 days. He's saying it's a short time. You know, like, who's gone on holiday for 10 days and at the end of it you go, where did that go? <laughs> That's the kind of thing. It's not literal. Actually, history says it got worse and worse and worse and worse for decades, particularly in Smyrna. So what do we do? Jesus, be faithful unto death. If you're going to die, die well. If you're going to die, die for Jesus. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. There's a second death. Jesus is saying, if your faith is real, you'll pass the test. If your faith is real, your faith will last forever in the end you'll die like everybody else but unlike everybody else you will live again forever with me because I'll give you the crown of life you'll undergo but overcome everybody has to undergo some things you've got different things than me we all undergo but we can we can overcome by his grace as we go through these trials with him, Jesus helps us. The ancient city of Smyrna is now called Izmir in Turkey. It was the most beautiful city of the seven on that route. It was called the Crown of Asia. Near the mountains by the sea, 35 miles of harbour. And Jesus, imagine, sends the messengers and one of them has a scroll written to these secret believers to go and try and gather them together and be able to bring this message from Jesus. It's in this place called Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh. What, make, what do you think of when you th hear the word myrrh? Three wise men. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. It's also the stuff that Jesus' body was embalmed with because it was to prepare him you know, for, for his burial because myrrh, it's, it comes from a plant but then it, it's basically, it, it's an anointing substance that when you crush it, gives off a beautiful fragrance. That's a picture, isn't it? When it gets crushed, a fragrance comes off it. Here's the crush. 
200 years before Jesus writes these words, Smyrna was the first city to build a temple to Dea Roma. What does that mean? Rome, God. They, they made, they deified their system of government. They said, Rome itself is a God, the empire. And a temple, the first people to sign up to this new religion were these people in Smyrna. They built a temple there. Then you could go and worship the system. And then, around this time that Jesus writes to them, a murderous dictator proclaimed himself to be God, a man called Domitian, who, who became the Caesar. And he demanded, as well as the empire being worshipped, that he, as the emperor, also would be worshipped. And so an extensive persecution began across the whole church. In all of these places that are going to get the letters, but particularly it went to fever pitch in Smyrna because these people had this special affinity to Rome and to Caesar. And some Jewish people in the city were also fiercely opposed to these Christians that they saw as, as like this dangerous sect that must be stamped out. So they would report about them, they would lie about them. Jesus says, I know that they've been slandering you. Can you imagine this kind of pressure? I don't know if we can imagine it. A very strong emperor worship religion and every year every citizen get this every year every citizen would have to go and pinch some incense on the altar and declare that Caesar is Lord and then if you did that you got a certificate which meant you were able to do the things that you would be able to do have business and operate freely and if not you were liable to arrest imprisonment and death what would you do? We moan if there's no decaf. But there's something really important that we can learn here about what persecution and pain and pressure can do. The church that gets crushed can give off a beautiful fragrance. It's purified, it's purged. Hypocrites don't hang around very long waiting to be persecuted. Richard Wurmvan says that when the communist tanks rolled into Romania, the churches all gathered together. He says this at the beginning of the book and uh, all the pastors got together for a meeting and then in walked a whole bunch of the bishops from the established church and they had embroidered upon their robes the hammer and sickle. And the bishops started to call one another comrade, comrade bishop. It's like straight in with the system. So he turned to his wife and he said, what shall I do? And she said, I didn't marry a coward. So he stood up and he preached that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he preached against the evils of communism and the system. And said he stood opposed to God. And he was arrested and he was tortured just about every day for 14 years in prison. See, false Christians don't want pain. They're not willing to sacrifice. They're going to go when they realise it's not all about me. The phonies were filtered out. That's what happens when the heat is on. Even today, if you look around the world at the places where the church suffers most, if you check out Open Doors top 10 list, places like North Korea, Sudan, you're going to see persecution destroys false faith. But it strengthens true faith. And we hear stories about the suffering church and it seems so far away, but I believe we all need to hear this. 
Because we're living in times where it's going to get harder to say that you belong to Jesus Christ. That you believe actually he is the way and the truth and the life and salvation is found in no other name. And that you believe the Bible is the word of God, even the bits you don't understand and don't even like the sound of. And you let it speak into your life rather than you say what the Bible says. You can let it say what God says to me. Do you, do you believe the Bible? If so, we need to believe this. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Nobody's got that in their fridge. But if I say I'm following Jesus and I never experience any of this weight and pressure, maybe I need to wonder, am I following that closely? Is it actually, am I living any different? Jesus warned them, it's going to get worse. Because he tells the truth. And it did. 50 years after this letter, AD 155, the persecution of Christians had continued and intensified during the whole of that time. The proconsul, Quadratus, put out an order representing the emperor that the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, would be found and arrested and brought for trial into the public arena. Polycarp had actually been ordained 60 years before in Ephesus by none other than the apostle John, who's writing the letter. Polycarp could have escaped, but he waited at home instead. He told his friends that he'd had a dream that night that his pillow had set on fire and then a verse had come, uh, sorry, a voice had come to him and, and it was Jesus' voice saying to him, Polycarp, play the man. So he waited. He told his disciples, I must be burned alive. And then there's a knock at the door and the soldiers came to arrest him. On the brief journey, when the captain saw how old he was, he begged him all the way. What harm would it do to say Caesar is Lord and to make the sacrifice and to save your life. Polycarp refused. He entered the packed arena. Pagans and Jews alike were screaming for his blood. The proconsul, again, saw how very old he was. We don't know how old he was. We know he was at least 86 from what he said later. But he was given another chance. He was threatened to be attacked by lions. The choice, again, curse the name of Christ, make sacrifice to Caesar, or die. No. In that case, I will burn you to death, said the proconsul. Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and is quickly quenched, but the fire which awaits you in the judgment to come will never go out. It's not called how to win friends and influence people, that. <laughs> Can you imagine the proconsul really didn't like that answer? He said, I order you to stop being an atheist. That's what they call them. If you didn't believe in all the Roman pantheon of gods, as Christians didn't, then you were an atheist. Why are you waiting, Polycarp said. Do what you will. The crowds came to nail him to the stake. He refused to be nailed to it. He said, I don't even need a rope. I'll just stay there in the fire. Leave me as I am. He said, for he who gives me power to endure the fire will help me remain in these flames unmoved. So they just stood him up next to the stake. And tradition says that when they lit the fire, the flames kept, the wind came and kept billowing around it and the flames actually weren't touching him. So in the end, somebody, an executioner, had to just run a sword through his heart to kill him. And the thing is, 
read that story and I think the suffering could have been avoided. So much suffering in our lives, we can't avoid it. It just happens, it's part of life. But this is suffering that could have been avoided quite easily. He was told repeatedly, all you have to do to get yourself out of this pain, to have your ministry back and so everything carries on in your life with no pain, certainly no flames, just say two words. What were those two words? Kaiser Kurios. Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp would die before he would say anybody else but Jesus is Lord. And when Quadratus asked him the final time, Polycarp famously said these words, 86 years I have served him and he has never forsaken me. So how can I forsake the king who saved me? I think he knew Jesus. We didn't just know about him. We can know about him and the question is, do you know him? The Bible says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Polycarp knew whatever it costs to gain Christ is worth it. Because he's the pearl of great price. He's the first and the last. He's the one who promises to the one who overcomes that whatever we undergo, even inevitable death in this life, because nobody's getting out, here of, out of here alive, I don't mean necessarily out of this room. <laughs> there will be no second death. No hell. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But everyone will suffer in this broken world. But for the Christian, this life is as close to hell as you will get. And I'll see some things in the news sometimes and I think this world can seem very like hell. But for the non-believer, this life is as close to heaven as you'll get. Make the most of it. One author said this, I'd rather have a bumpy ride to heaven than a smooth ride to hell. Like we've, we know, suffering is inevitable in this life. But where is your hope in seasons of pain? Who do you go to? What do you look to? Do you try and comfort yourself? Do you expect other people to comfort you and make you happy? Do you have addictions that you go to? You know those things don't work. Have we yet learned what it means to trust in Jesus? To trust in God. The Romanian pastor I talked about, Richard Wurmbrand, as I say, he was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years under communist rule. This is a quote. It's so insightful. You could never learn this any other way. We can learn from it. Christians are like nails, he says. Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. Wow. Is that true? Is that true of you? Is it true of me? Or do we push God away? When it didn't work out the way I wanted it to or I expected it to do. When I don't get the answer that I was expecting in the time I was expecting it to come. When hard times inevitably come, when suffering comes, when life hammers you, does it drive you deeper into Christ? Every week, we're asking, we're saying, what's the postcard that Jesus would write to us? And what I love and what's so encouraging for me, especially for anybody here today who's going through any kind of suffering, Jesus gives these suffering Christians, see with the other letters he's going to say, stop doing this, start doing that, don't do this, don't do that. With these people, all he says is this, do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid, Wendy. I know you're not. Do not be afraid. Jesus says to Ivy, do not fear. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's shaking us up. He's moving us about. He's doing it. He wants us to grow. That's why. And I don't just mean grow by reaching more people. I mean grow. Spiritually. And he shakes us up. And he lets us go through some things. And to be honest with you, not being able to meet in the cinema and not getting Starbucks before you come in or whatever, I'm not going to compare that to somebody in the suffering church. I'm not going to say to them, well, you never guess what happened to us. They'll be like, oh, can I pray for you? (laughs) If scary times come your way, if you feel the pressure start to build, do you hear what the Spirit says? Do not be afraid. It won't always be easy, but God will always be good. And we can pray. In fact, as the band come up now, can we worship now and ask, this is what I've been praying since I read that quote, that the things that in life that would threaten to hammer us, which do come and hammer us at times, that every single one of them would just drive us deeper into Jesus. So no matter what happens, God uses us to advance his good news, his gospel, to help more and more people find their way back to God. Do not be afraid. Speak that to yourself. Do not be afraid. Jesus says to you, do not be afraid. A crown is being made. Crown of life. Made by the one who wore a crown of thorns. Who knows what we're going through. And whatever we undergo, he'll help us to overcome. Do not be afraid. Shall we stand to pray? It's in times, when times get hard. Anybody can be a Christian when it's easy. But it's in times of suffering that you find out, in fact, everybody around you finds out whether it's true, whether you know about God or whether you really know him. Nobody wants to invite and pray for suffering to come in their lives. We're not going to do that. Enough comes anyway. But Lord, I thank you that, I just want to personally thank you that I know you as my father. And I know that you're good to your children. And life at times can be really hard. But I want to, I've not known you, Lord, as long as Polycarp has known you. But I've known you for 31 years and I know that you knew me well before that. That you've always known me and never, ever forsaken me. You are my king. You save me. And you always promise us good. And you always, as we heard before, work it out somehow for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So whatever's happening, whatever's going to happen, the things we know about and the things we don't know about, Lord. Thank you we can hear your words saying to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We put our trust in you when the pressure's on. We cast all our cares upon you. We will not fear.
Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.